0: Welcome to Volume 8 of The Mating Season. Chapter 19. Owing to the fact that on the instructions of Dame Daphne, safety first Winkworth, port was no longer served after dinner, and the male and female members of the gang now left the table in a body at the conclusion of the evening repast, I had not enjoyed a tete a tete with Esmond Haddock since the night of my arrival. I'd seen him around the place, of course, but always in the company of a brace of assorted ants. Or that of his cousin Gertrude. In each case, looking byronic. Checking up with Jeeves, I find that that is the word all right. Apparently it means looking like the late Lord Byron, who is a gloomy sort of bird, taking things the hard way. We came together, he approaching from the nor-nor-east and self-approaching from the south-south-west. He greeted me with a moody twitch of the cheek muscles, as if he had thought of smiling, and then thought again, and said, Oh, to hell with it! Hello. He said. Hello, I said.
1: Nice day.
0: He said. Yes, I said. Out for a walk? Yes. He said. Are you out for a walk? Prudence compelled me to descend a subterfuge. Yes, I said. I'm out for a walk. I just ran into Miss Pierbright. At the mention of that name, he winced as if troubled by an old wound.
1: Oh, he said. Miss Pillbright, eh?
0: He swallowed a couple of times. I could see a question trembling on his lips, but it was plainly one that nauseated him. For after uttering the word was, he kept right along swallowing. I was just about to touch on the situation in the Balkans in order to keep
1: the conversation going when he got it out. Was Worcester with her? No, she was alone. Are you sure? Certain. He may have been lurking in the background, behind a tree or something. The meeting occurred in the station yard. He wasn't skulking in a doorway? No. Strange. You don't often see her without Worcester these days.
0: He said this and ground his teeth a trifle. I had a shot at trying to mitigate his anguish, which I could see was considerable. He, too, had obviously noted Gussie's spotty work, and it was plain that what is technically known as the green-eyed monster had been slipping it across him properly. They're old friends, of course, I said. Are they? Oh, rather, we, well, I should say they, have known each other since childhood. They went to the same dancing class. The moment I mentioned that, I was wishing I hadn't, for it seemed to affect him as though some hidden hand had given him the hot foot. You couldn't say his brow darkened because it had been dark to start with, but he writhed visibly, like Lord Byron reading a review of his last slim volume of verse and finding it a stinker. I wasn't surprised. A man in love and viewing with concern the competition of a rival does not like to think of the adored object and that rival pirouetting about together at dancing classes and probably splitting a sociable milk and biscuit in the 11 o'clock interval. Oh. He said, and gave a sort of whistling sigh, like the last whoosh of a dying soda-water siphon.
1: The same dancing class? The same dancing class, eh? He brooded a while. When he spoke again, his voice was hoarse and rumbling. Tell me about this fellow Worcester, Gussie. He a friend of yours? Oh, yes. Have you known him long? We were at school together. I suppose he was a pretty loathsome boy. The pariah of the establishment. Oh, no! Changed after he grew up, eh? Well, he certainly made up leeway, all right. Because of all the slinking snakes it has ever been my misfortune to encounter, he is the slimiest.
0: Would you call him a slinking snake?
1: I did call him a slinking snake. And I do it again, as often as you wish. The fish-faced, trailing Arbitus.
0: He's not a bad
1: chap. That may be your opinion. It is not mine, nor, I should imagine, that of most decent-minded people. Hell is full of men like Worcester. What the devil does she see in him? I don't know. Nor anyone else. I've studied the fellow carefully, and without bias. "'and he seems to me entirely lacking in charm. "'Have you ever turned over a flat stone?' "'From time to time!' "'And what came crawling out? "'A lot of obscene creatures that might have been his brothers. "'I tell you, Gussie, "'if you were to put a bit of Gorgonzola cheese "'on the slide of a microscope and tell me to take a look, "'the first thing I'd say on getting it focused would be, "'Why, hello, Worcester!' He brooded ironically, for a moment. I know the specious argument you are about to put forward, Gussie. He proceeded. You are going to say that it is not Worcester's fault that he looks like a slightly enlarged cheese-mite. Very true. One strives to be fair, but it is not only the man's revolting appearance that distresses the better element. He is a menace to the community. Oh, come on! What do you mean, oh, come on? You heard what my Aunt Daphne was telling us at dinner the night you arrived? About this ghastly Worcester perpetually stealing policemen's helmets? Not perpetually, just as a treat on boat race night. He frowned. I don't like the way you stick up for this fellow, Gussie. You probably consider that you are being broad-minded but you want to be careful how you let that so-called broad-mindedness grow on you. It is apt to become mere moral myopia. The facts are well documented. Whenever Worcester has a spare moment, he goes about London, persecuting unfortunate policemen, assaulting them, hampering them in their duties, making their lives a hell on earth. That's the kind of man Worcester is." He paused and became for
0: a moment lost in thought. Then there flitted across his map another of those quick twitches which he seemed to be using nowadays on the just as good principle
1: as a substitute for smiles. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Gussie. I only hope he intends to start something on those lines here because we're ready for him. eh, ready and waiting, you know Dobbs,
0: the flatty.
1: "'Our village constable, yes, a splendid fellow, "'tireless in the pursuit of his duties.'
0: "'I have not met him. "'I hear his engagement has broken off.'
1: "'So much the better. "'It will remove the last trace of pity and weakness from his heart. "'I've told Dobbs all about Worcester, "'and warned him to be on the alert. "'And he is on the alert. "'He is straining at the leash. "'Let Worcester so much as lift a finger in the direction of Dobbs's helmet.' and he's in for it. You might not think so at a casual glance, Gussie, but I'm a justice of the peace. I sit on the bench at our local sessions and put it across the criminal classes when they start getting above themselves. It's my earnest hope that the criminal streak in Worcester will come to the surface and cause him to break out, because in that event, Dobbs will be on him like a leopard. And he will come up before me and I shall give him thirty days without the option, regardless of his age or sex. I didn't like the sound of this. You wouldn't do that, would you, Esmond? I would. I'm looking forward to it. Let Worcester stray one inch from the straight and narrow path. Just one inch and you can kiss him goodbye for thirty days. Well, I'll be moving along, Gussie. I find it helps... A little to keep walking.
0: He disappeared over the horizon at 5 MPH, and I stood there aghast. The sense of impending peril was stronger on the wing than ever. Oh, the chiefs were here, I said to myself. I found he was. For some little time past, I'd been conscious of some substance in the offing that was saying good morning, sir, and turning to see where the noise was coming from, I beheld him at my side, looking bronzed and fit, as if his visit to Bramley-on-Sea had done him good.
1: Chapter 20 Good morning,
0: sir. He said. May I make a remark? Certainly, Jeeves. Carry on. Make several. It is with reference to your appearance, sir. If I might take the liberty of suggesting. Go on, say it. I look like something the cat found in Tutankhamen's tomb, do I not?
1: I would not go so far as that, sir, but I have unquestionably seen you more
0: Soanay. It crossed my mind for an instant that with a little thought one might throw together something rather clever about way down upon the Soanay River, but I was too listless to follow it up. If you will allow me, sir, I will take the suit which you are wearing and give it my attention. Thank you, Jeeves. I will sponge it and press it. Thank you, Jeeves. Very good, sir. A beautiful morning, is it not, sir? Thank you, Jeeves. He raised an eyebrow. You appear distrait, sir. I am distrait, Jeeves. About as distrait as I can stick. And there's enough to make me distrait. But surely, sir... Matters are proceeding most satisfactorily. I delivered Master Thomas at the Vicarage, and I learned from my uncle Charlie that her ladyship, your aunt, has postponed her visit
1: to the hall.
0: Quite, but these things are mere side issues. I don't say that they aren't silver linings in their limited way, but take a look at the clouds and lower elsewhere. First and foremost, that man is in again. Sir I pulled myself together with strong effort, for I saw that I was being obscure. Sorry to speak in riddles, Jeeves, I said. What I meant was that Gussie had once more become a menace of the first water. Indeed, sir. In what way? I will tell you. What started all this ranny-gazoo? The circumstances of Mr. Finknautle being sent to prison, sir. Exactly. It's an odds-on bet that he's going to be sent to prison again. Indeed, sir. I wish you wouldn't say indeed, sir. Yes! The shadow of the pen is once more closing in on Augustus Finknautle. The law's flexing its muscles and waiting to pounce. One false step, and he's bound to make at least a dozen in the first minute, and into the coop he goes for thirty days. And we know what will happen then, don't we?
1: We do indeed, sir.
0: I don't mind you saying, indeed, sir, if you tack it on something else like that. Yes, we know what will happen, and the flesh creeps. What? Distinctly, sir. I force myself to be sort of calm, only a frozen calm, but frozen calms are better than nothing. Of course, it may be, Jeeves, that I am mistaken in supposing that this old lag is about to resume his life of crime, but I don't think so. Here are the facts. Just now I encountered Miss Pierbright at the station yard. We naturally fell into conversation, and after a while the subject of Gussie came up. And we had been speaking of him for some moments when she let fall an observation that filled me with a nameless fear. She said there was a little job she was getting him to do for her. When I said what job, she replied, Oh, just a trivial little job about the place. And her manner was evasive. Or shall I say furtive? "'Whichever you prefer, sir.' "'It was the manner of a girl, guiltily conscious, of being in the process of starting something! "'What ho!' I said to myself. "'Hello, hello, hello, hello!' "'If I might interrupt for a moment, sir, I am happy to inform you that my efforts to secure a clack for Mr. Esmond Hattick at the concert have been crowned with gratifying success.' The back of the hall will be thronged with his supporters and well-wishers. "'I frowned! "'This is excellent news, Jeeves, "'but I'm dashed if I can see what it's got to do with the res under discussion!' "'No, sir, I am sorry. "'It was your observing hello, 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 hello "'that put the matter into my mind. "'Pardon me, sir, you were saying—' "'Well, what was I saying? I've forgotten!' You were commenting on Miss Peerbright's furtive and evasive manner, sir. Ha! Yes! I was suggesting that she was in the process of starting something. And the thought that smote me like a blow was this. If Corky is starting something, it's a hundred to eight It's something in the nature of reprisals against Constable Dobbs. Am I right or wrong, Jeeves? The probability certainly lies in that direction, sir. I know Corky. Her psychology is an open book to me. Even in the distant days when she wore rompers and had a tooth missing in front, hers was always a fiery and impulsive nature, quick to resent anything in the shape of Oompus Bumpus, and it is inevitable as Oompus Bumpus that she will have classed the zealous officer's recent arrest of her dog. And if she had it in for him merely on account of their theological differences, how much more will she have it in for him now? The unfortunate hound is languishing in a dungeon with gibes upon his wrist, and a girl of her spirit is not likely to accept such a state of things so pinely. No, sir. You're right, no, sir. The facts are hideous, but we must face them. Corky is planning direct action against Constable Dobbs, taking we cannot say what form, and it seems only too sickeningly certain that Gussie, whom it is so imperative to keep from getting embroiled again with the force, is going to lend himself as an instrument to her sinister designs. And here's something that'll make you say indeed, sir. I've just been talking to Esmond Haddock, and he turns out to be a J.P. He has the powers of the high, the middle, and the low justice in King's Deverell, and is consequently in a position to give anyone thirty days without the option as soon as look at them. And what's more, he has taken a violent dislike to Gussie, and told me in so many words that it is his dearest wish to see the Darby's clapped on him. Try that one on your pianola, Jeeves. He seemed about to speak, but I raised a restraining hand. I know what you're going to say, and I quite agree. Left to himself, with conscience as his guide, Gussie is the last person likely to commit a tort or malfeasance and start J.P.'s ladling out exemplary sentences. Quite true. From boyhood up, his whole policy instilled into him, no doubt, at his mother's knee, has been to give the primrose path a solid miss and sedulously avoid those rash acts which put wilder spirits in line for thirty days in the jug. But one knows that he is easily swayed. Casmead, for instance, swayed him in Trafalgar Square by threatening to bean him with a bottle. I shall be vastly surprised if Corky doesn't sway him too, and I know from personal experience. I said, thinking of that orange at the dancing school, "'that when Corky sways people, the sky is the limit.' "'You think that Mr. Finknautle will lend a willing ear to the young lady's suggestions, sir?' "'Her word is law to him. He will be waxing her hands. "'I tell you, Jeeves, the spirits are low. "'I don't know if you have ever been tied hand and foot to a chair in front of a barrel of gunpowder "'with an inch of lighted candle on top of it.' "'No, sir. I have not had that experience.' "'Well, that's how I'm feeling.' I'm just clenching the teeth and waiting for the bang Would you wish me to speak a word to Mr. Finknautle, sir Warning him of the inadvisability of doing anything rash There's nothing I'd like better He may listen to you I will make a point of doing so at the earliest opportunity, sir Thank you, Jeeves It's a black business, isn't it? Extremely, sir I don't know when I've come across blacker Very, very murky everything is WITH PERHAPS THE EXCEPTION OF THE AFFAIRS OF MR. APPEARRIGHT, SIR. AH, YES, CATSMEAT. I WAS INFORMED OF HIS LUCKY STRIKE. HIS HAT IS ON THE SIDE OF HIS HEAD, THEY TELL ME. IT WAS DISTINCTLY IN THAT POSITION WHEN I LAST SAW HIM, SIR. WELL, THAT'S SOMETHING. YES, THAT CHEERS THE HEART A BIT. I SAID THIS, FOR EVEN WHEN preoccupied WITH THE STICKINESS OF THEIR OWN CONCERNS, THE WORSTERS CAN ALWAYS TAKE TIME OUT TO REJOICE OVER OUR BUDDY'S BLISS. One may certainly chalk up Cat's Meats' happy ending as a ray of light. And you say that the village tufts are going to rally round Mr. Haddock this evening. In impressive numbers, sir. Well, dash it, that's two rays of light. And if you can talk Gussie out of making an ass of himself, that'll be three. We're getting on. All right, Jeeves, push off and see what you can do with him. I should imagine you will find him at the vicarage. Very good, sir. Oh, and Jeeves, most important... When at the vicarage get in touch with young Thomas and remove from his possession a blunt instrument known as a cosh, which he has managed to acquire. It's a species of rubber bludgeon, and you know as well as I do how reluctantly one would trust him with such a thing. You could go through the telephone book from A to Z without hitting on the name of anyone one wouldn't prefer to see with his hooks on a rubber bludgeon. You'll get the idea of what I mean when I tell you that he speaks freely of beating Constable Dobbs with a weapon. "'so choke it out of him without fail. "'I shan't be easy in my mind till I know you've got it.'
1: "'Very good, sir. I will
0: give the matter my attention.' "'He said, and we departed with mutual civilities. "'He, to do his day's good deed at the vicarage, "'I to resume my hoofing in the opposite direction. "'And I had hoofed perhaps a matter of two hundred yards "'when I was jerked out of a reverie "'into which I had fallen by a sight which froze the blood and caused the two eyes like stars to start from their spheres. I had seen Gussie coming out of a gate of a picturesque cottage, standing back from the road behind a neat garden. Kings Deverell was one of those villages where picturesque cottages breed like rabbits, but what distinguished this picturesque cottage from the others was that over its door were the royal arms and the words POLICE STATION an evidence that the above legend was not just a gag, was supplied by the fact that accompanying Gussie, not actually with a hand on his collar and another gripping the seat of his trousers, but so nearly that the casual observer might have been excused for supposing that this was a pinch, was a stalwart figure in a blue uniform and a helmet, who could be no other than Constable Ernest Dobbs. CHAPTER Twenty
1: One.
0: It was the first time I'd been privileged to see this celebrated Raza, of whom I'd heard so much. And I think that even had the circumstances been less tense, I would have paused to get an eyeful for his, like silversmiths, was a forceful personality, arresting the attention and causing the passer-by to draw the breath in quite a bit. The sleepless guardian of the peace of Kings Devil was one of those chunky, nobly officers. It was as their nature, "'setting out to assemble him, said to herself, "'I will not skimp!' "'Nor had she done so, except possibly in the matter of height. "'I believe that in order to become a member of the force, "'you have to stand five feet nine inches in your socks, "'and Ernest Dobbs can only just have got his nose under the wire. "'But this slight perpendicular shortage "'had the effect of rendering his bulk all the more impressive. "'He was plainly a man who, had he felt disposed, "'could have understudied the village blacksmith,' and no questions asked, for it could be seen at a glance that the muscles of his brawny arms were as strong as iron bands. To increase the similarity, his brow, at the moment, was wet with honest sweat. He had the look of a man who has recently passed through some testing emotional experience. His eyebrows were aglow and his mustache a bristle, and his nose a wiggle. Grrr. He said and spat. Only that and nothing more. A man of few words, apparently, but a good spitter. Gussie, having reached the great open spaces, smiled weakly. He too appeared to be in the grip of some strong emotion, and as I was also that made three of us. Well, good day, officer, he said.
1: Good day, sir,
0: said the constable shortly. He went back into the cottage and banged the door, and I sprang at Gussie like a jumping bean. What's all this, I quivered. The door of the cottage opened, and Constable Dobbs reappeared. He had a shovel in his hand, and in this shovel one noted what appeared to be frogs. Yes, on closer inspection, definitely frogs. He gave the shovel a jerk, shooting the dumb chums through the air as if he was scattering confetti. They landed on the grass and went about their business. The officer paused, directed a hard look at Gussie, spat once more with all the old force and precision, and withdrew. And Gussie, removing his hat, wiped his forehead.
1: "'Let's get out of this,'
0: he urged. "'It was not until we were some quarter-mile distant "'that he regained a certain measure of calm. "'He removed his glasses, polished them, "'replaced them on his nose, and seemed the better for it. "'His breathing became more regular.' "'That was Constable Dobbs,' he said. "'So I deduced.' "'From the uniform, no doubt.' "'That and the helmet!' "'Quiet,' said Gussie. I see, quite, I see, quite, I see. It seemed possible he would go on rambling like this for a goodish while, but after saying quite about another six times, and I see about another seven, he snapped out of it. Bertie, he said, you have frequently been in the hands of the police, haven't you? Not frequently, once. It's a ghastly experience, is it not? "'Your whole life seems to rise before you.
1: "'By Jove, I could do with a drink of orange juice.'
2: "'I
0: paused for a moment to allow a dizzy feeling to pass. "'What was happening?' I asked, when I felt stronger. "'Eh?' "'What had you been doing?' "'Who, me?' "'Yes, you!' "'Oh,' said Gussie in an offhand way, "'as if it were only what might be expected of an English gentleman.' I had been strewing frogs. I goggled Doing what? Strewing frogs in Constable Dobbs's boudoir. The vicar suggested it. The vicar? I mean, it was he who gave Corky the idea. She'd been brooding a lot, poor girl, on Dobbs's hard handed behaviour in connection with her dog. And last night the vicar happened to speak of Pharaoh, and all those plagues he got when he wouldn't let the children of Israel go. You probably recall the incident. His words started a train of thought. It occurred to Corky that if Dobbs were visited by a plague of frogs, it might possibly change his heart and make him let Sam Goldwyn go. She asked me to look in at his cottage and attend to the matter. She said it would please her and be good for Dobbs, it would only take a few minutes of my time. She felt that the plague of lice might be even more effective, but she is a practical, clear-thinking girl, and realized that lice are hard to come by, whereas you can find frogs in any hedgerow. Every mouse in my interior sprang into renewed life. With a strong effort I managed to refrain from a howling like a lost soul. It seemed incredible to me that this super-goof should have gone through life all this while without fetching up in some loony bin. You would have thought that some such establishment as Colney Hatch with its talent scouts out all over the place would have snapped him up years ago. Tell me what happened. He caught you? Fortunately, no. He came in about a half-minute too late. I had bided my time and having ascertained that the cottage was empty, I went in and distributed my frogs. And he was somewhere round the corner! Exactly, in a sort of shed place by the back door, where I think he must have been potting geraniums or something, for his hands were all covered with mould. I suppose he had come in to wash them. It was a most embarrassing moment. One didn't know quite how to begin the conversation, eventually i said oh hello there you are and he stared at the frogs for some time and then he said what's all this they were hopping about a bit you know how frogs hop hither and thither you mean that's right hither and thither well i kept my presence of mind and said what's all what officer and he said all these frogs and i said oh yes There do seem to be quite a few frogs in here. Are you fond of them? He then asked if these frogs were my doing, and I said, In what sense do you use the word doing, officer? And he said, Did you bring these frogs in here? Well then, I'm afraid, I wilfully misled him, for I said no. It went against the grain to tell a deliberate falsehood, of course, but I do think there are times when one is justified in... "'Get on with it!' "'You bustle me so, Bertie.' "'Where was I?' "'Oh, yes.' "'I said, no, I couldn't account for their presence in any way. "'I said, it was just one of those things we should never be able to understand. "'Probably,' I said, "'we were not meant to understand.' "'And, of course, he could prove nothing. "'I mean, anyone could wander innocently into a room "'where there happened to be some frogs hopping about.' the Archbishop of Canterbury, or anyone. I think he must have appreciated this, for all he did was mutter something about it being a very serious offence to bring frogs into a police station. And I said, I supposed it was. And what a pity one could never hope to catch the fellow who had done it. And then he asked me what I was doing there. And I said I had come to ask him to release Sam Goldwyn, and he said he wouldn't because he had now established that the animal was in a very serious position. So I said, ''Oh, well then, I think I'll be going.'' And I went. He came with me, as you saw, growling under his breath. ''I can't say I like the man. His manner is bad, brusque, abrupt, not at all the sort of chap likely to win friends and influence people.'' ''Well,'' I suppose I'd better be getting along and reporting to Corky. That stuff about the second bite will worry her, I'm afraid. Repeating his remark about being in the vein for a drink of orange juice, he set about a course with a vicarage and pushed off. And I resumed my progress for the Deverells, speculating dully as to what would be the next horror to come into my life. It only needed a meeting with Dame Daphne Winkworth, I felt somberly, to put the tin hat on this dark day. My aim was to sneak in unobserved, and it seemed at first as though luck were with me. From time to time, as I slunk through the grounds, keeping in the shelter of the bushes, and trying not to let a twig snap beneath my feet, I could hear the distant baying of ants. But I wasn't spotted. With something approaching a la on my lips, I passed through the front door, into the hall, and bing! Right in the middle of the fairway, arranging flowers at a table, Dame Daphne Winkworth. Well, I suppose Napoleon or Attila the Hun or one of those fellows would have just waved a hand and said, Aha there! and hurried on. But the feat was beyond me. Her eye, swivelling round, stopped me like a bullet. The wedding guest, if you remember, had the same trouble with the ancient mariner.
2: Ah, there you are, Augustus.
0: It was fruitless to deny it. I stood on one leg and dashed a bead of perspiration from my brow.
2: "'I had no time to ask you last night. Have you written to Madeline?' "'Oh, yes, rather!' "'I hope you were properly apologetic.' "'Oh, yes, rather!' "'And why are you looking as if you had slept in your clothes?' "'She
0: asked, giving the upholstery a look of distaste. "'The thing about the Worcesters is that they know when to speak out and when not to speak out. "'Something told me that here was where manly frankness might pay dividends.' Well, I said, as a matter of fact, I did. I ran up to Wimbledon last night on the milk train to see Madeline, don't you know? You know how it is. You can't say all you want in letters. And I thought, well, the personal touch, if you see what I mean. It couldn't have gone better. I have never actually seen a shepherd welcoming a strayed lamb back into the fold. But I should imagine that his manner on such an occasion would closely parallel that of this female 20-minute egg "'as she heard my words. "'The eyes softened. "'The face split into a pleased smile. "'That wrinkling of the nose, "'which had been so noticeable a moment before, "'as if I had been an escape of gas "'or a knock-quite-up-to-sample egg, "'disappeared totally.
2: "'It would not be putting it too strongly "'to say that she beamed!' "'Augustus!' "'I think it was a good move!' "'It was indeed. "'It is just the sort of thing "'that would appeal to Madeline's romantic nature.' Why, you are quite the Romeo, Augustus. In the milk train, you must have been travelling all night. Pretty well. You poor boy, I can see you're worn out. I will ring for Silversmith to bring you some orange juice.
0: She pressed the bell. There was a stage wait. She pressed it again, and there was another stage weight. She was on the point of giving it a third prod when the hour produced the man. Uncle Charlie had left, and I was amazed to see that there was an indulgent smile on his face. It is true that he switched it off immediately and resumed his customary aspect of a respectful chunk of dough, but the facial contortion had unquestionably been there.
1: I must apologize for my delay in answering the bell, milady. He said, When your ladyship rang, I was in the act of making a speech. And it was not until some moments had elapsed that I became aware of the summons.
0: Dame Daphne blinked. Me too,
1: making a speech in honor of the happy event, milady. My daughter Queenie has become affianced, milady. Dame
0: Daphne, oh and I very nearly said indeed, sir, for the information had come as a complete surprise. For one thing, I hadn't suspected for an instant. The ties of blood linked this bulging butler and that lonesome parlour-maid, and for another it seemed to me she had got over her spot of Dobbs trouble pretty snappily. So this is what woman's constancy amounts to, is it? I remember saying to myself, and I'm not at all sure I didn't add the word
2: FOR. And who is the happy man, Silversmith?
1: A nice, steady young fellow, milady. A young fellow called Meadows.
0: I had a feeling I'd heard that name somewhere before, but I couldn't place it. Meadows, Meadows. No, it eluded
2: me. Indeed, from the village? No, my lady.
1: Meadows is mister Finknottle's personal assistant.
0: said Silversmith, now definitely unshipping a smile and directing it at me. He seemed to be trying to indicate that after this he looked on me as one of the boys and practically a relation by marriage, and that, on his side at least, no more to be said of my weakness for singing hunting songs over the port and introducing into country houses dogs that bit like serpents. I suppose the gasp that had escaped my lips sounded to Dame Daphne like the gurgle of a man dying of thirst, for she instantly put in her order for orange juice.'
2: "'Silversmith had better take it to your room. "'You will be wanting to change your clothes.' "'He might tell Meadows to bring it,' I said faintly. "'Why, of course. You will want to wish him happiness.' "'That's
0: right,' I said. "'It was not immediately that Cat's meat presented himself. "'No doubt, if you have made all your plans for marrying the daughter of the house, "'and then suddenly find yourself engaged to the parlour maid, "'you need a little time to adjust the faculties.' When he finally did appear, it appeared to me from his dazed expression that he had still a longish way to go in that direction. His air was that of a man who has recently been coshed by a small but serviceable rubber bludgeon. Bertie, he said, a rather unfortunate thing has happened. I know. Oh, you know, do you? What do you advise? There could be but one answer to this. "'You better place the whole matter before Jeeves.' "'I will. That great brain may find a formula. "'I'll I'll lay the facts before Jeeves and bid him brood on them.' "'But what are the facts? How did it happen?' "'I'll tell you. You want this orange juice?' "'No!' "'Then I'll have it. It may help a little.' "'He drank deeply and mopped the forehead.' "'It all comes of letting that Dickens spirit creep over you, Bertie.' The advice I give every young man starting life is never get Dickensy. You remember I told you that for some days I've been bursting with a sort of yeasty benevolence. This morning it came to a head. I had had Gertrude's note saying that she would elope with me, and I was just a solid chunk of sweetness and light, in ecstasies myself. I wanted to see happiness all around me. I love my species and yearn to do it a bit of good and with those sentiments fizzing about inside me, with the milk of human kindness sloshing up against my back teeth, I wandered into the servant's hall and found Queenie there in tears. Your heart bled! Profusely, I said, there, there. I took her hand and patted it, and then, as I didn't seem to be making any headway, almost unconsciously, I drew her onto my knee and put my arm around her waist and started kissing her. Like a brother. Ha-ha! Don't say, a ha Bertie. It was only what Sir Galahad, or someone like that would have done in my place. Dash it. There's nothing wrong, is there, in acting like a sympathetic elder brother when a girl is in distress. Pretty square behaviour, I should have thought. But don't run away with the idea that I don't wish I hadn't yielded into the kindly impulse. I regret it sincerely, because at that moment, Silversmith came in. And what do you think? He's her father. I know! You seem to know everything. I do! Well, there's one thing you don't know, and that is that he was accompanied by Gertrude. Gosh! Yes. Her manner on beholding me was a bit reserved. Silversmith, on the other hand, was not. He looked like a minor prophet, without a beard, suddenly confronted with the sins of the people— "'and started in immediately to thunder denunciations. "'There are fathers who know how to set about an erring daughter, "'and fathers who do not. "'Silversmith is one of the former, "'and then, in a sort of dream, I heard Queenie telling him that we were engaged. "'She has since informed me that it seemed to her the only way out. "'It seemed, of course, momentarily, to ease the strain.' "'How did Gertrude appear to take it?' "'Not very blithely.' I've just had a brief note from her, cancelling our arrangements. He groaned the sort of hollow groan I'd been groaning so much of late. You see before you, Bertie, a spent egg. A man in whom hope is dead. You don't happen to have any cyanide on you. He groaned another hollow one. And on top of all this, he said... I've got to put on a green beard and play Mike in a knockabout crosstalk act. I was sorry for the unhappy young blister, of course, but it piqued me somewhat that he seemed to consider that he was the only one who had any troubles. Well, I've got to recite Christopher Robin poems. Paw. he said. Might have been Winnie the Pooh. Well, there was that, of course.